Pray with me, will you? Our Father, we... We don't want to move away from the name above all names quickly, for there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we might be saved. The name is Jesus. At that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So thank you for the privilege to come together in your presence and bow our hearts before you and confess that Jesus is Lord so that the Father might be glorified. All glory to you, O God. And now we ask that because of your grace, you would open up our hearts and minds to your message to us. May we be encouraged by your awesome power and presence awareness that you are Lord over all, that this world is your world. You are almighty God, and we are privileged to be your children. And so I pray, Father, that we would be strengthened for the journey you've given us. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Well, I'm guessing that most of us in here have asked the question somewhere in life, how, oh Lord, can you stand by and watch all of these things happen and do nothing? How can you stand by while people are abused, while the world is in torment, while the struggles are all around us, while there's genocide here and destruction there while there are grave illnesses and, oh God, why do you not step in and do something? Surely we've asked that question. Surely we've cried out to the Lord. Or if you haven't, certainly you've had someone ask you the question, well, if there is a God, why does he allow all these things to happen? Why is there so much trouble around us. You've been asked that question, I'm sure. And as I think about Israel and the context historically of what we are, the text we've been in in the prophecy of Zechariah, I'm sure Israel has lamented that question over and over again as they have gone through a generation of exile. Well, the exciting news is that in Zechariah 6, God pulls back the curtain and gives us all a backstage pass to, to his operation of the world. It gives us an encouraging insight into the answers to that question. We are assured that God is not some sort of by, helpless bystander to what's going on or is unaware of what's going on in the world. We get an entirely different picture of the dominance of God as we come to the last of the visions of that one great night of the prophet Zechariah. We come to vision number eight in Zechariah six. Would you turn there with me this morning? We want to um, examine this text a little closer 
before we can really launch our way out of these questions, there's a principle that makes its way throughout the scriptures that could be described simply as God takes care of his own house before he takes care of those outside. And by that I mean in the terms of judgment. Uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, throughout, this principle is laid out for us. There's a scripture text that you, most of you would all know, of course, and we can probably recite it. If my people, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer and will heal their land. If my people first... And you say, well, maybe that's an Old Testament concept. No, no, it moves into the New Testament as well. In 1 Peter, for instance, 1 Peter is, Peter is, is describing to the early Christians, of giving them an insight into their own suffering that they were struggling. He's talking about if you suffer as a Christian. Then he gives an explanation. He says this, it is time for judgment to begin with the family God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4.17. So you can see that the idea works its way through both Old Testament and New Testament. There is this dealing that God has with his own people first. And then he deals with those outside. And we've seen this since we began our study in Zechariah. Right through Zechariah from 1 right through now to 6. And last week in particular, we, we, were in, we encountered the fact that God was dealing very, very firmly with his own people. That they were disobeying the word of God. They were not worshiping God, but worshiping idols. And God was dealing with them profoundly and and, and, and um, very, very particularly. In fact, we, we discovered that he even took the tools of their wickedness and put them in a measuring basket and carted them off to Babylon. But by the time we get to vision 8, and this is the final of the visions that Zechariah had in that great night, we get um, a picture now that he's talking about judgment on the evil nations around. After dealing with his own people, he now is ready to deal with those outside. And, and I believe that, that now we live in a time now where God is refining his church. As you look around at all the things that are going on in the world, there, there's going to come a time when God is going to deal with all of the wickedness and all of the evilness in the nations around. But, but presently, as we've seen this pattern, God, I believe, is refining his church. He's building it and refining it. And judgment will come. So today's text is a historic example of how this works. Uh, God's apparent, and I use that word, Advisedly, is apparent in action is what it is. And it should not be misunderstood. 
This world is God's world. Every part of it. Every single individual, every nation. This world is God's world. And everyone is held accountable to Him. Everyone. So we get to see what's behind the scenes. What it looks like. How promises come to pass. But in particular, I want to look at four very, very important characteristics of God that grow out of this text. I must say to you, when I, when I uh, started digging into this text and researching it this week, it, it became like a treasure trove. That's the only way I can describe it. It's like one of those texts where you look at it and you say, this is so full of things. Everything you lift up, every layer you lift up is like, whoa, that's there's something amazingly deep there, and then you start looking, you're chasing stuff all over the place, and it was just exciting this week. If I can contain myself, I will preach to you, because it's, it's so packed with awesome stuff. It's just amazing. It reminds me, you ever, you ever go or invited to go into your, like a grandparent's attic and, and go searching through old chests, uh, chests that were filled with old memorabilia and stuff like that, and you, you lift out this picture, you're like, whoa, look at that, and you, you're looking at all kinds of stuff. That's what this text is like. I, I can remember um, going to my uncle's farm, and he had, uh, he had several of these memorabilia chests in the farm, dust all over them, hay all over them, you know what I mean, those kind of things. You open up the chest, you know, that kind of thing, the chest, and you just go in there. I would love to go out there as a kid, and I'd, I'd always boot it off to the barn as soon as I could and go through these chests because they had in it mem- old war memorabilia from my grandfather and my uncles and all that kind of stuff, and I'd, I'd start putting them on the helmets and all that kind of stuff, and had, they had knives and, and uh, bayonets and stuff. I mean, it was an awesome place, you know, and it's just, it's just like I, I, I actually took my grandfather's World War I helmet, with permission, of course, and, uh, and, and got it for myself. But this is what this text is like. It's just like you're digging in and you're going through layers of stuff and it's amazing. So, so stay with me. We've got a lot to cover here this morning. But I can tell you this. Be comforted. I just want to say to the front, at the end of this, I, I, I really believe you will be very encouraged. Be comforted, weary pilgrim. Frustrated or hurt or suffering. Be comforted. Be encouraged by way of a vision and a prophecy. The Lord God is reassuring his people that he remains the dominant presence over global affairs, regardless of how it looks. When international or personal affairs press in upon you to threaten your peace and your calm, God wants you to know four exciting things about him this morning, all right? So let's go. Zechariah chapter 6. When the, uh, to an exile community, and by the way, they were probably about four years from their sentence of 70 years, but they were to find out that exile was going to be permanent until the Lord Christ and Messiah came. But nevertheless, they were four years from the end of their 70, their promised 70 years of exile. And uh, they, were, they had been passed around like a cheap harlot between Babylon and Persia. And they were wondering when the dark night of their souls was going to come to an end. You been there? This is a glorious insight for us. Glorious insight. I looked up again. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains. Mountains of bronze! Exclamation mark. We'll talk about that. 
The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled or multicolored, we think. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. I underlined that in my Bible. The Lord of the whole world. That's who is your king. That's who is your savior. Do you understand that? He's the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses toward the west. And the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he cried to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now that's the end of the vision, end of vision eight, the end of the night of visions. And now we move to prophecy. How do I know that? Because it says the word of the Lord came to me. That's prophecy. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Jephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown, or better, crowns. And set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty. And will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. I.e. the priesthood and the king. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial, a sign, remembrance in the temple of the Lord. And those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent, you, sent me to you. This will happen if you Diligently obey the Lord your God. Okay. Some great stuff here. Vision 8 is not prophecy as much as it is a visual backstage pass of what's going on and what has been going on to quiet their hearts, to encourage them, to encourage them to hang in there. God is the God of the whole world. We, we need that. I, I need that. Don't you need that? Don't you need to be reminded of that? You look around yourself and you wonder. So, so let's look here first. There are two unmistakable images of strength and power. Because I want, I, want, I want you to notice here first the power of God. And the two are this. Four chariots and two mountains. Mountains of bronze, exclamation mark. Let's look at the chariots first of all. In the ancient Near East, 
chariots were implements of war. Uh, literally, this is the best they had. This, this is rolling out the best of the warfare mechanics. These are the stormtroopers of ancient Near East warfare. God is declaring war on wickedness. That's what this is about. Military strength. He's framing this in the context of international affairs. Talking about the north, talking about the south, talking about the west. He's talking about military affairs. And he's saying to them, I, I've noticed what's going on. And, and then it frames all of this in two mountains, mountains of bronze. Now, when we read through the scriptures, mountains are generally symbolic of the domain of God. God always characterizes himself as being in the mountains. I will lift up my eyes to the, you're going to say hills, say mountains because that's the real word. Forget the translation you're looking at. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. By the way, the maker of heaven and earth, in case you're wondering about his power and capabilities. His domain is always talked about as a mountain. It talks about Zion being a mountain. Now, when you go and see Jerusalem, you realize it's kind of a hill compared to the Rockies. But it's, it's referred to as a mountain, symbolic of, of God's domain is, is mountain. But, but I was struck by mountains of bronze. Why mountains of bronze? Why would it be mountains of bronze? I, I did some digging, which you could do as well. Nothing special about what I've done here. I've just spent more hours than you have during the day to do that because thankfully you support me to do that and I appreciate that. Hours to pursue the word of God, which is a tremendous blessing, by the way. I don't take it lightly. I invest lots of hours in it. What you have here is um, a very, very particularly important symbol for Israel and ultimately for us. It would mean something very, very spectacular to a community in exile. Mountains of bronze. Wait a minute. Bronze. That reminds us of something. You see, um, in the tabernacle, God had given explicit instructions about how the elements, the metallic elements were to be used. Gold. In the tabernacle, there was much gold. And gold was a, a symbol of the kingship of God. That's when Jesus was brought gold. It meant something. And the wise men brought it to him. It was a symbol, symbolic of God's kingship. In the tabernacle, of course, gold is a pure metal. And also in the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, was silver as well. Silver was another pure element. And silver was always symbolic of redemption. You remember that regularly people were redeemed with pieces of silver. It's a symbol of redemption. But bronze was something else. Bronze isn't a pure metal. It's a mixed metal. And outside of the tabernacle, before people could enter the tabernacle in the presence of God, are bronze implements. Bronze was the place of atonement where the sacrifice took place. Bronze was a symbol of sinfulness needing to be dealt with. And to Israel, not only was this particularly stark to them, and of course this, the bronze serpent, you remember, they looked to the bronze serpent 
to look and live. Uh, the type of Jesus Christ. But um, this tabernacle where God's judgment deals with sin. And so the mountains of bronze were, were, were a, a strong message to Israel that sin is about to be dealt with in the nations. That's what they saw. And by the way, the enduring shame of Israel was was indelibly imprinted in their hearts as they remembered that their implements of the tabernacle were hauled away to Babylon, shut down the temple. Back a few pages in your Bible, you'll come to Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah gives an outstanding presentation of urgency to Israel. Repent, repent, or you're going into exile. Repent, repent. He's lamenting and crying, the weeping prophet, calling on the people to turn from their ways that God might relent from his judgment. But they didn't. And at the very end of Jeremiah, there's a a, a very um, stunning description of what happened and I believe that Israel was taken to this prophecy as they, saw, as they heard of this vision of the mountains of bronze. Listen to this, Jeremiah 52, 17. By the way, D.C. leaders, I think I said 51. It's 52, 17. The Babylonians <clears throat> broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmings, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes, and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the twelve bronze bulls under it, and the movable stands which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each of the pillars was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on top of the one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with pomegranates was similar. And we'll stop there. Bronze, bronze, bronze. Eight times hauled away to Babylon. The places of atonement. The mixture of metal. Symbolic of sin in our lives. Carted away. When they, when they heard this vision of the mountains of bronze, the domains of God and bronze... It said to them, the power of God, God is omnipotent and has no rivals and he's going to deal with things in the indelible image of their failure and of Babylon carting away the bronze, the places of atonement was, was settled in their hearts. Bob Cole of Hockey Night Canada would say, oh baby, I mean when, he, when you read this section you're like something's happening, that's what's going on here, oh baby, that's what I did in my office. Oh, baby, whoa, I'm only two verses in. We got a long way to go. Now, look at we got to move, we got a motor. Look what else there is colored horses commissioned to patrol the earth, all of them powerful. There's a 
description here for us. I mean, we, we ask the question, does God not notice the abuses of Babylon? Does he not notice the pride of Persia? Does he not notice when people shake their fists, heaven word, and blasphemy? Does he not notice this stuff? Have you ever wondered, why doesn't God just ah, deal with it right now? While the news guys are right there, you know, it's like, oh, look at this, what they're doing. And just like flatten it right, right in the spot. You ever wonder, what, what is God up to? But he makes the point here, these first chariots, by the way, have horses. The, these implements of God's warfare on wickedness are mobile and moving and ready to fan out. God talks to us about intentional engines on these chariots. He talks to us about horsepower. He talks to us about mobility and direction. He talks, about, he talks to us about his, his implements being commissioned at his bidding. He talks about horses just straining to get going, and, and they're waiting for God to say, go. This talks to us about the providence of God. The providence of God. God is omniscient, and nothing that happens is unknown to him. <clears throat> we learned in the first chapter that, that these horses were commissioned as reconnaissance to go throughout the world and bring back reports to God. This is a picture, by the way. God doesn't need horses. <laughs> These are symbols of God's reach into the world. He moves out into the four corners of the world. I never really did understand that since it's a round world. But he reaches out to the four corners of the world. And uh, these horses are on mission, commissioned to patrol the earth, to do God's bidding to the far edges of the earth. And in particular, it identifies the one horses, the horses and chariots that are the black horses. And it says they're heading north. Well, if you know anything about geography, what's north of Israel? Babylon. God has basically said, I've had enough. And he's telling his people this. He's, he's telling them, look, at, I, I know how to deal with this. I've had enough of Babylon. I've had enough of Persia. I've had enough of Cyrus. I've had enough of Darius. I'll do what I will do. Time is up. This is all about the careful, purposeful timing of God, beloved. When we don't understand, when we can't see, we need to understand God is functioning based on providence. He decides according to his timing. He's not unaware. He's not ready. And then we move on into verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8, and we start reading that I asked the angel, what are these? And he says, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. We see the power of God. We see the providence of God. We see the presence of God. God is omnipresent. And there is no place shut out from his reach. Sends the winds to the north, to the east, to the west, to the south. That spells news. Nothing is news to God. You understand that? All news is God's news. God is fully aware of what's going on. He sends his messengers out to the, the four, four directions of the world, emphasizing the source and scope of God's reach, the Lord of all the world. Truly he is. <clears throat> the word translated here, spirits, would be better translated winds. The word is ruach. My wife loves when I do Hebrew that way. She just asks me, please, Rick, 
Do more Hebrew like that. I love hearing that. Ruach. Then this is for you. Ruach. You know what? You can't have a sore throat and do Hebrew very well. It's just too painful. But the word is ruach. And it means wind or it means spirit or it means anger. How did they know what it meant? They knew by context. I think it's better here winds. And I, I, I've spent the time looking around, uh, poking around the, in the scriptures. Revelation 7.1, Matthew, same thing. This is really a reference to winds. It, it really is, it, it doesn't matter so much in the sense that it's emphasizing the source and scope of God's reach anyway. But it talks about the winds of God that are able to destroy in Jeremiah 49, 36, Elam, or are able to save as they do in, in uh, Ezekiel 37, 9, where winds of God breathe life into the dry bones and bring them to life. You know, God's abilities to change whole nations can be done with the air. It's like God will break the powers ruling over the oppression of his people, and he can do it with his wind. The wind is an agent of God's wrath that has gone out against Babylon in this case because he talks about the horses going north. They're going north to Babylon. And then he says, as they go to the north country, it gives my spirit rest. My anger is appeased. I've dealt with it. I've taken care of it. They added to the calamity of God's people in chapter 1. I'm going to deal with them. Now, here's, um, here's what drives history, okay? The, these eight verses tell us what drives history. Make no mistake about it. And, and visually, we, we are given this retrospective of reality, what's going on, what has been going on. If they're trying to understand, why, oh God, why did you take, why did Babylon get to, to dominate us so long, and why now Persia, and what does all of this mean? What are you doing? Are you doing anything? He's saying, yes, I'm doing, I'm doing work. I'm doing work internationally. The promise of God's dominion that was given to them in vision one is being described now in its fulfillment. The dominance of God, his power, his providence, his presence. The war horses are waiting release. Straining, it says. Any horse people here? You know about horses? You know about racehorses? You know about the ones that want to go and run? You know about when they come to the gate at the Kentucky Derby and they're just pawing the ground and they're waiting to go? And, and the picture here is of God who is so dominant that while things around him are just straining to go, they can't go until he says, go. And when God says go, it is go, folks. It's on Three times throughout the whole world, it's go time. That's who God is. I don't know whether this particular picture of the black horse chariots heading north was the event that I'm about to share with you, but I think it was one, an event like this. We, we don't know really whether this is the event event of the Babylonians or event of Cyrus or an event of Darius, it's hard to tell. I mean, each of them, even though we talked about Persia being a little bit easier on the, on the people of God, it was Darius, the Persian, who threw Daniel into the lion's den. 
And this could very well be a description of what's going on. In fact, the timing would be very, very similar to when Daniel was being thrown in the lion's den in the north. But there was a night before that that Daniel was involved in. There was a night when um, a man named Belshazzar, Daniel 5, was partying with his people. It was a drunken party, and he was using the implements of the temple, the gold and the silver and the bronze, to host his party. And in that party, he was toasting with the implements of the temple of God, the maker of heaven and earth. He was using those implements to toast the gods of gold and the gods of silver and the gods of bronze and the gods of wood and the gods of stone. And in the arrogance of that night, it says there was a finger that looked like the finger of a man that started to draw on the wall of the party room. And it drew out these words, mini, mini, tikal, ufarsin. So shaken, so rattled was Belshazzar that night that he called for Daniel to come and explain to him what the wall meant. And Daniel stood before him Boldly, Belshazzar, the grandson likely of Nebuchadnezzar, and said to him, you were witness to the arrogance of your father, it says in the text. And you saw what the living God was able to do in judgment of him. And yet here tonight, you exalt yourself and false gods in the presence, he says, of the God whose hand, in whose hand is your life breath and your ways. And this God you have not glorified. Behind the scenes, the black-horsed chariot was on its way. And that night, Belshazzar dropped dead. Make no mistake about it, beloved. This world is God's world. The war horses of God are pawing at the ground even now as I preach. Just waiting for their assignment from the Lord to go to North Korea or Syria or China or other places where Christians are being persecuted and abused. Make no mistake about it. The power of God, the province of God, the presence of God is always directed by the plans of God. And this prophecy is absolutely stunning and breathtaking. I'll summarize it for you. Under the plans of God, God throughout the generations is purposing one thing, 
And that is that all things would be brought under the rule and reign of Almighty God. That's it. In all that we do, in all that we flurry to do around here, there's one assignment, there's one mission under which all the things that we do is a subset. It's to bring this universe under the rule and reign of Almighty God. And this, and all of these events in history are all moving toward the reshaping of the communities of people, politically, internationally, around the kingdom of God and his ways and his plans. The promises that have been buried under layers of broken down walls and messianic dreams for them and crushed hopes for us are promised to us and laid out to us according to the plans of God who will bring them to pass. And and very quickly, I just want to show show you three really amazing, redemptive, shaping prophecies right here in 9 through 15. And the first one is this. The returning, the, those returning from Babylon who were bringing gold and silver back with them were told to fashion crowns, actually, it's plural, and set them on the head of the high priest. That's the first amazing, I did like, I was in the office going, like when I read that, I was, what, what, putting a crown, I had to stop, put a crown on a priest, you don't put crowns on priests, you put crowns on kings. What in the world is this talking about? Put a crown on a priest. And then it says, and he will sit and rule on his throne. Priests don't rule on thrones. Kings rule on thrones. And then I looked at his name and it was Yeshua. Yeshua in Hebrew means God saves. But Yeshua in Greek is, say his name please, Jesus And as you continue to dig through this, so you see a priest that is wearing a crown. Priests don't wear crowns. And they are to take these, and they're crowns, by the way, it says crowns. We think of multiple crowns, we see that. No, they made crowns with circlets. There would be a crown, and then a crown inside a crown, and a crown inside a crown. There's gold and silver making all these multiple crowns. Put crowns on his head. Uh, The same as we, we sing that great song, Crown him with many crowns. The Lord, that comes right from Revelation. That, that's from their context. We think of multiple crowns, and Jesus is sort of juggling all these crowns on his head. No, it's, a, it's the crown of a king, the crown with circlets of crowns. It's, it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's glorious. Gold and silver and fine jewels. This is a crown of crowns on the priest. And, and then we're left thinking, well, Wait a second, as I continue to read, I read on and I read this and I see, it says in verse 12, tell him, tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. And in your text in mine, it says, here is the man whose name is the branch. But that's not what it says. It says, behold, the man whose name is the branch. And then I started thinking, wait a second, I've heard that before. Behold the man. I've heard of that before. Do you remember at the crucifixion when Pilate brought Jesus out and put a crown of thorns on his head and called out to the chief priests who were standing around him, the scholars of the Israeli scriptures, and said, behold the man. This this is, wait a minute, I've read that. I, I saw that. Ironically, the chief priests 
did not understand what this text meant. This text meant that a priest would wear a throne or would wear a crown and would sit on the throne. And his name is Branch. Shoot. Branch. Branch is, is, the, is the reference symbolically to Messiah, Isaiah 4.2, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Keep reading through your Bible, Old Testament. Read in Isaiah 53 when he talks about this shoot like a root out of dry ground. This branch uh, will branch in the, in the, in the uh, play on words. This branch or shoot will shoot out from his place. This branch is none other than a reference to Messiah. And it says here that the two will be brought into harmony. The priestly uh, office and the kingly office will be in harmony on the throne. We've only known of one priest and king and prophet sitting on a throne. That's Jesus Messiah. That's why King Saul was rejected. King Saul grabbed not only the crown, but he tried to grab the priestly role as well. That was reserved only for Messiah. This is a... This is Jesus oozing out of the Old Testament text. If I ever saw it, he'll come and build his temple. And this branch will shoot, will shoot out from the place of little promise and unexpectedly like a root out of the ground, Isaiah 53, 2. This play on words in verse 12, it's like this branch will shoot out of the branch on a very insignificant place. I can think of a couple of insignificant places that Jesus was brought from. Bethlehem, the least of Ephrathah. I can think of Nazareth. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? And here it is, all played out for us, all told to us by this prophecy. And then finally it says, he will build his temple. He will build the temple of the Lord. Over and over again, it's stressed, the building of the temple. Verse 15, people will come from far away to build the temple. What is this talking about? God is talking now about reestablishing ultimately the temple. And people will come from far away. Jesus is establishing through the church, Messiah, branch, behold the man, prophet, priest, and king, promised to us the symbol. The temple is the symbol of the throne of God. We have no idea, beloved, of who we are, I think. We are the temple of the living God. We have been entrusted by the living God to be the symbol in this world of the rule and reign of God. Why was temple so important? Why has temple always been so important? Because temple is an advertisement of the throne of the God it claims to, re- to have as resident. It was so important to build the temple first, to tell the people God is back in business, but he wanted to remind them in this vision, God's never out of business. But visually, sometimes it looks like he is out of business. And he wants to encourage his people to say, look at I'm not out of business. I'm always. And, and this, new, this New Testament, New Covenant relationship, whereby now we are the temple, a mobile temple. Think about it. God is building this glorious temple of people coming from far and wide. Today, people all over the place are coming to the temple, come, becoming the temple of the living God. That's the picture that is given here. 
to advertise the rule and reign of our great God so that, beloved, everything that we do is our call from the living God to advertise the God that we claim is enthroned on our heart. A Davidic king would come, the sin remover. That's the picture here. And the call is that, in verse 15, that you will know the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Beloved, that's for us today. That phrase is for us today. Take heart, God says. I am powerful. I'm working according to my providence. I'm everywhere present. I see everything. And my plans are unfolding. Take heart and live in such a way that the people around you will know that I have sent you. We are called to establish the rule and reign of Christ in everything that we do fearlessly. Fearlessly. Because the four horses are straining to take care of you. In our worship, in our discipleship, in our evangelism, in our outreach, in our charity, in our family time, in our workplace time, in our neighborhood, in our free time, in what we read, in what we see, in our playtime, one vision. We are the advertisement of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, a remarkable Savior. We are a temple. And onlookers are to notice that Christ rules in that temple. So that they come to us and they say, I don't know if I believe what you believe, but there's one thing I'm certain of. I know that you believe it. Because they see with their own eyes the establishment in our lives of the rule and reign of Christ. So, beloved, does your life reflect that? He's building a great and glorious temple. And we are it. Our Father, we thank you for this this glorious section of Scripture that we only were able to scratch the mere surface of. It is a treasure trove of glorious truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause it to strengthen your people to encourage them with your, your glory and your power and your, your providence and your presence, your plans, O oh Lord. This world is your world, and we are your beloved temple. Oh God, help us to live this glorious identity that we have in Jesus Christ. For Christ's sake I pray.
Amen. To embed in our hearts the truth of this morning's text, let me leave you with three words to apply to your life the rule and reign of Christ. What does it really look like? And the first is this. It means trust. Trust in the power of God. Trust Him. It means wait. We can't see what's going on, but we know who's in charge of this world. So wait on the Lord. And the third is obey. Obey His commands. That's what the rule and reign of Christ looks like in your life. Trust, wait, obey. It's easy to remember. It spells two, T-W-O. Don't know the symbolic issue of that, but it works. T-W-O. Beloved, trust, wait, obey. That's what the rule and reign of Christ looks like in your life. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for bringing us into your family, for this opportunity to hear your encouraging word to us, that you are in charge. We know this, but we see this as you give us this backstage pass today. So Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect that one vision you have for us, that the rule and reign of Christ would be our lives. Trust, wait, obey, for Jesus' sake, amen.